0: Welcome back to What the HR Podcast. I'm Jesse Novi, an HR business partner with CH Robinson.
1: And I'm Mike Toole, HR technology consultant with SAP SuccessFactors.
0: Thank you for joining another episode of What the HR. Today, we're joined by Joanne Lublin. Joanne is a veteran journalist and author of two books for women who aspire to business leadership roles. She inaugurated and wrote the Wall Street Journal's career advice column for nearly 30 years, and she still remains a regular Wall Street Journal contributor. She also is highly knowledgeable about other issues she long covered for the Wall Street Journal, including women in the workplace, corporate governance, executive pay, and management recruitment. And she has given more than 150 speeches based on her first book, which was called Earning It, she talked about imposter syndrome, fair pay crisis, coping techniques, and other topics affecting ambitious women. Her latest book, which is the book that we talk about in our episode today called power moms reflects unique insights from two generations of successful us business women and their children in the book. She explores issues such as working mother guilt and career advancement for expectant and new mothers. Um, This book was incredible. I've had the opportunity to read it. We certainly could have used up uh, well over an hour of Joanne's time today uh, because there were so many great um, stories to reflect upon and questions to ask Joanne. I really do think you're going to enjoy hearing some of Joanne's um, takeaways from her experience writing this book and really her why uh, behind what inspired her to write this book and reflection on some of the stories of the women that she was able to interview while writing the book. Um, We really hope you enjoy this time with Joanne as much as we did. And as always, uh, if you are enjoying these episodes and our guests, please be sure to leave us a rating and review on your favorite podcast platform. Those rating and reviews help get the word out about the What the HR podcast. We hope you enjoy this episode and thanks for listening. Well, Joanne, welcome to the What the HR podcast, and thank you so much for being our guest today.
2: Thanks for having me, Jess.
0: Yeah, you're welcome. So today we're going to focus on some really important topics that you cover in your book called Power Moms. And before we part ways, we'll make sure our listeners know where they can find your book in case they're interested in purchasing it. But maybe you could start out, you know, although we, we, give, we gave a little bit more of a formal bio at the top of the episode, if you could just give a little bit more on your background and your inspiration for writing the book.
2: Sure. So I spent my entire professional career at the Wall Street Journal. Um, I initially was a summer intern at the Wall Street Journal. I was chosen for a, a program called the Newspaper Fund that originally had been started by a foundation that was created by the company that owned the Wall Street Journal. And it was originally created to get men at liberal arts colleges to go into journalism. I got chosen the first summer they opened it up to women and journalism majors. And I then, because I had that summer internship joined the Wall Street Journal in 1971 uh, as the first woman hired as a full-time reporter in the San Francisco Bureau. Fast forward, had a very long career at the Journal, also had two kids along the way. uh, And at the time when I declared my first pregnancy, which was in 1979, something like a half a dozen female reporters at the Journal within a two-week period all announced that they were pregnant, which was As far as I had heard, six more than had ever announced their pregnancy. And in fact, the managing editor at the time was like, this wasn't in my job description. What the heck am I supposed to do now? Any case, the idea for writing this book, Power Moms, How Executive Mothers Navigate Work and Life, grew out of what I learned from writing my first book, which is called Earning It, Hard Won Lessons from Trailblazing Women at the Top of the Business World. And that book, I looked at 52 women who all got to be very successful in business and looked at what were some of the obstacles that they overcame both personal and professional in order to be successful business leaders. All but one of those 52 women were baby boomers and almost more than half of them were women with children. And among those who had become had become public company chief executives the proportion who had kids was even higher. I only devoted one chapter, however, in that book to the quandaries and difficulties of being a success in the job as well as being a success at home. But it made me wonder about whether there was another book to be done that might look at those boomers because all but one of those 52 women were boomers and how they had been successful as moms and, how much they had to do to get there and be successful as moms and executives in terms of trailblazing and dealing with lots of very overt sexism. To so what if then had things gotten better for women who came after them, women who were in at the time I did my reporting, which was in 2019, in anywhere from their early 30s to early 40s. You couldn't have, you had to have not had your 45th birthday yet to be counted in that younger group of executive moms. So, two thirds of those were Gen Xers, a- roughly a third were millennials, 86 executive moms altogether. And then, in addition to those 86 mothers, I interviewed 25 adult daughters of the boomers. What was it like growing up with someone who had a high-powered executive career and was also mom? And so those women, for the most part, were in their 20s. And I end up then having a snapshot of what has changed and what has not changed at really about two and a half generations of women. On top of those 111 women, I also tell my own story in this book because my publisher, who was the same for both books, Harper Collins, said, when you do Power Moms, I want you to start every chapter with a personal story about your journey as a working mom. And I was like, okay, but I never got to be an executive. I was never higher than a first line supervisor. What if I don't have a relevant story? And she was like, okay, then you're gonna have to tell your readers why. So I did find relevant stories for every opening of every chapter. Well,
0: I can I've you know, I've had the opportunity to read your book cover to cover, and it was really a page turner for me as somebody who is a child of a boomer. And, you know, now somebody who has children and works in human resources, you know, where a lot of these parental leave policies, you know, are are developed from, if you will, I will say my biggest takeaway was how far we've come yet how far we still have to go, and how slow the pace of change has been, especially in the United States. I know that there are other countries that have well exceeded what we offer parents um, in the United States. So I hope that someday um, when my daughter is my age, there'll be another book out there, Joanne, um, that will have similar stories, but we will have moved at a more aggressive pace at that point.
2: One can only hope. How old's your daughter, Jess? Ah, uh, she is seven. All right, there's
0: hope. Yep, there is hope. So, um, you know, as as somebody who had the opportunity to interview these incredible women and and write about their stories, I would love for you to maybe just reflect on one that resonated with you the most, or was the most impactful to you.
2: Well, I think one that really resonated me resonated the most was one of the boomer moms who really had to prove that she had the right stuff to be an executive. And in her case, when she becomes pregnant with her only child, her daughter, she's a vice president in a real estate company in New York, but she's the only female at that level. And so the the male colleagues, the other VPs, are totally skeptical about the fact that she plans to have this child take some time off and come back. And they don't believe her when she says this. And so they stop sort of referring possible, you know, deals or clients to her. Uh, And they give her a really hard time to the point that when she does have her baby, she feels like she has to prove it to these guys that she has the right stuff. And so she doesn't take any maternity leave whatsoever. And, and literally comes back to the to the office two days, three days, a couple of days after the baby's born. She still has to take her little pillow that they gave her in the in the hospital because it's sort of sick. And yet, you know, the guys in the office didn't think that she was serious about coming back. And at the same time, several years later, quite a few, like a decade later, her daughter's in middle school and is chosen for a athletic team where they're having games every you know, week at a mid-afternoon. And she wants to go see her daughter play. I don't know what the sport was, but the point is, unlike today, where we understand, particularly in enlightened companies that have HR people like you and your colleague, Mike, we understand that we are whole individuals that have both personal lives and professional lives. She essentially had to lie to leave the office. And so the first time she leaves to go to her daughter's game, she says, oh, got a doctor's appointment back later, right? And she does this every week throughout the season of the team. And by the fourth time, some of the guys go, are you okay? They're like, oh, yeah, 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 I'm, I, I'm fine. Just got another doctor's appointment.
0: Did you find that um, these women had a hard time reflecting on those times in their life where, you know, I I think the reason I asked the question is I I think as a, a parent, there are times where you do what you need to do to get by and sometimes you don't sit in how that's impacting you personally, how it might be impacting your family, those around you. And then hindsight, when you have some time to reflect on what you did to sort of survive, if you will, during that time frame, it gives you an entirely different perspective. Did you find that as you were um, kind of almost having a therapy session a bit with these women?
2: It did often feel like a therapy session. And in fact, I'm often asked what was most surprising thing about reporting this book and what the most surprising thing was that so many women and I'm not talking about a lot it's still less than a dozen but you know nine or ten of these women either choked up or teared up or actually started crying in sharing some of their stories and it it often had to do with looking back on you know would have should have could have or talking about a serious illness that they had to deal with of their own, of a close family member, of a child, of a, of a parent dying at a very young age. But I think what one of the things that was really eye opening for me in interviewing the daughters, the young adult daughters, is how they saw what their moms were doing through a very different lens when they were children and growing up than maybe mom did. And one story that did not make it into the book is very, very, very interesting. So this mom who is a boomer has to go out of town because she's doing an offsite with her team. And that means she will not be home on her daughter's 12th birthday. Okay, and the daughter's in the East Coast and mom's in, I think, Colorado. And before she starts her off-site team meeting, she insists that, you know, she does a conference call to her daughter and makes her team sing happy birthday to the daughter, right? And then I asked the daughter, do you remember where mom was on your 12th birthday? And she said, well, yeah, she was here. We had the party as we always do on Saturday right? Because every working mom celebrates kids' birthdays on the weekend. And mom always made a really special cake, whatever theme I wanted, and she did. And we had a blast. It's like, that's really interesting. Your mom says she was actually out of town on the day of your real birthday, which was like Wednesday. Um, And she's still feeling, this is like, you know, 17 years later or 15, I guess about 15 years later because she was 12 and the girl, the young woman was like 27. And she's still feeling guilt over this. She says, Really, I don't, I don't remember her being out of town. Every
0: uh, mother, um, I hope, listens to this episode because I, I'm sure we've, every everyone listening will have a scenario like the like that, that they're still holding on to today.
2: But we um, need to communicate, okay? And the moral yeah. of the story is, and this is also a lesson I learned from reporting this book because I too have a daughter And I thought I knew everything about what she had experienced growing up with me as a pretty ambitious and career driven mom. And interviewing her multiple times for this book, I learned a lot of things that I didn't know. Um, But shame on me for have not asking her sooner. Mm -hmm. Joanne, did
1: you see, oh, I'm sorry, Jess. Um, (laughs) Did you see, so as you interviewed the children, the did daughters? you see the, the the daughters, did you find any similar characteristics across them, you know, well, because they had similar experiences with, with their moms being executives?
2: Um, I think there were two common themes. One was that when they were, you know, growing up and early adolescence um, they often resented their mom because she was traveling a lot. She was working very hard. Um, They didn't feel like they could ever possibly fill her shoes. They were way, way too big for them. Um, In some cases, they resented. In one case, the girl developed sort of, you know, an anxiety disorder over this because of her mom constantly, not just the traveling, but that the the, the daughter wasn't comfortable with the nanny, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, But what was interesting is then when... For many cases, when these young uh, women go off to college, suddenly they need mom in ways they didn't need her before. And particularly when they're trying to get summer internships or they're coming out of school and now they're going on their first job interviews, they suddenly rediscover that they have this secret weapon. And it's called mom the executive because she not only knows how to network, she knows how to apply for jobs, she knows how to interview for jobs. She also then can help them make introductions. She can also help guide them when they are struggling to be successful in that first job. And there's this great scene in the book where the, the daughter is now a supervisor for the first time and has to essentially fire somebody on her team. And she's walking down the street when she gets an email saying that she has to do it that day. And she calls her mom up, who's the CEO of a business unit, a big company, and essentially has her take brought out of the meeting to say, what do I do? And her mom, you know, steps out of the meeting to talk to the 20-something daughter to walk her through because she's got to essentially fire this person in the next hour. And, you know, and the mom was like totally cool with it. And, and some of these daughters were so touched and so, you know, help, grateful to their moms that they would brag about this to their peers. And so pretty soon, you know, their moms would be getting emails from the daughter saying, hey, my BFF would like to know if you could review her LinkedIn profile or this letter she's doing of, of, of thank you for a job interview, whatever.
1: And this is probably, this may be... Naive on my part, but when I think about how much we've progressed, and just mentioned we haven't gotten far enough on these things, but I am curious what you've seen as maybe potential new challenges for for working moms in the times that we're in that are maybe different, uh, just because of different circumstances, like working from home.
2: Well, I think there are upsides and downsides to the two years that we have spent living with COVID-19. And one of them, of course, is the horrible tragedy that has befallen so many families in our country because of this illness. The upside is we had an unintended national experiment in whether it was possible to actually work from home successfully. Obviously, there were lots of people who were doing this before, but it was a minuscule percentage of the white collar workforce. And of course, during the pandemic, there were many blue collar workers who had no choice about working from home. But those of us who were lucky enough to work for companies where this was an option, we proved that it worked. And so as companies have started, in fits and starts as we know, to reopen offices and to give people the option of either a hybrid arrangement or even continuing to work from home full-time for the indefinite future, which frankly is a great advantage from a childcare and family responsibility point of view. It's creating its own new sets of issues for working parents, for men and women alike, which is out of sight, out of mind. How do we get noticed for not only important assignments, promotions, just the, the old fashioned bumping into somebody in the hall or over coffee in the break room uh, about the stuff that counts in terms of the grapevine and in terms of who's up, who's down, who's in, who's out. And I think, again, what the smart employers are doing is they are recognizing that we cannot treat people differently based on their location. Just like the work from home experiment has also proven that it's not the hours that you work or what time of day you work, it's the results that you produce that ought to be how we I, measured. So I, you know, I think on balance, it can be what we've seen happen over the last two years, a positive for parents with kids, but it is also something where employers need to be very mindful of not treating people differently who show up in person.
0: Yeah, very true. And you know, I've I am on a team and have been on a team where we've had employees that were remote prior to COVID. And I've asked those team members, I've said, you know, now that we've all been remote, how has that impacted you in meetings and, you know, participating in brainstorming events and 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 whatnot? And they've said it's been incredible. You know, if, if anybody um that's listening has you know, been sick or, you know, been working from home, you know, one day and had to dial in for a team meeting where 98% of the people are in the office and, you know, you and one other person are at home, you can barely keep up with the conversation. You never know when to jump in. It's hard to hear people. There's, you know, non-verbals that are occurring um, in the meeting that you can't pick up on because you're remote. So for those individuals, I think this has been a huge plus. I agree. Yeah. Um, so earlier we were kind of, uh, talking a little bit about Um, mom guilt when you had given the example of the mom that missed her daughter's 12th birthday. And you actually have a chapter about this in your book, which I felt was very appropriate. And you really uh, kind of broke that chapter out into different categories that can help, you know, relieve and or support some of that mom guilt. And I'd love for you to talk about that a little bit. And, you know, we don't have to go through each of the topics, but maybe pick a couple that you you feel um, are maybe the most powerful.
2: Well, just a little backstory on this chapter, which is essentially 10 hacks for ditching working mother guilt. The idea for the chapter actually came from an executive mom who makes her first appearance in earning it. And she actually comes up with a quote that becomes the title of that book's chapter about working moms. And the chapter's title is uh, manager moms are not acrobats. And her point was that there is no such thing as work-life balance. And when then I come back to her, as I did for about a half a dozen of the women from Ernie it, when I go back to this particular executive mom and interview her for Power Moms, she says, you've got to have a chapter about ditching working mother guilt. It's the world's biggest waste of energy, biggest waste of time. And so one of those 10 hacks comes from her. And the idea is to involve your children in your work life. So in her case, well, there are actually two of the hacks. In her case, she doesn't go on a business trip without alerting her kids ahead of time as to why she's going, when she's going, how long she's going to be away, why it's important for her from a job perspective, what kinds of people are gonna be helped because she goes on this trip. But more importantly, she also tries to let the kids know ahead of time if she's gonna be away for a key school event and to make sure that she tries to plan the next trip with them in mind in terms of what else they have coming up. The other hack that she suggests is this notion of looking at life through the lens of the glass being half full rather than half empty. And so if you find yourself sitting down for dinner with your, you know, loving spouse and kids, and once again, you're not eating dinner until 6.30, don't give yourself a big hard time over the fact that it's 6.30 and you're finally eating dinner. Give yourself a pat on the back that you're eating dinner with your family. You're getting to spend time with your kids. And Mm -hmm. I think, uh, you know, another good hack that is in that chapter is this notion that taking care of ourselves, okay, is important. That self-care is not selfish care. Because if we don't take care of ourselves as parents, men and women alike, we cannot be there for our children. And there's, you know, my, my son lives in Minneapolis Hates the fact that I love to tell the story, but one time when he was a toddler, it was after dinner, he was playing with his dad, and I thought, great, I'm going to go take a bath. I was exhausted from work, and I had no sooner than sunk under the water when there's a bang at the door, and of course, it's little toddler Dan. And he says, mommy, what are you doing? And I said, mommy is having some me time, Dan. And Dan says, can I have me time with you? Which of course, you know, plucked all my guilt heartstrings that I had. But I said, Dan, your dad's out there in the living room waiting to play with you. Why don't you go finish playing with dad? And when I'm done with my me time, I'll read you a good night story. Okay.
1: <laughs> well, I can relate to that one. I think a lot of people can. <laughs> it's
2: Tell us I, your your version of that story, Mike.
1: Well, I I my mind just goes to and I joke about it with my wife all the time. Our kids will be sitting down watching TV, doing whatever they do for an hour straight. As soon as I go up stairs or something to hang out there me and my wife will hang out. They all get up and they run up there like it's it's like they know that you're trying to do me time. <laughs> it's, It's a great, it's a great story. That one I can relate to.
0: Yeah. I'm glad I was looking at my list of the things that you had covered in that chapter. And I had that one highlighted. So I'm glad that you talked on that one. Cause I think for, like you said, for men and women alike, it's just a hard one. We, you know, we work all day and then we come home and there's food that needs to be put on the table. There's kids that need to be taken to activities, their homework that needs to be helped with. And all of those seems all, the, all of those things seem to take priority over a bath or reading a book or maybe phoning a friend to catch up, you know, all of those things that fill up our own cups. So
2: the other thing is that me time doesn't have to take up a lot of time. You mm-hmm. know, you set your alarm 10 minutes sooner and watch the sunrise and meditate while the sun is rising. And that's, that's 10 minutes of me time even now, did the way hmm
1: I wanted to piggyback off of, you kind of talked about, these are some of the hacks to get over um, some of that guilt, but just in like, generally speaking, I mean, the book is how executive mothers navigate work in life. So are there other tips and tricks that you learn through these interviews that you can share with our listeners for, you know, folks that maybe are listening and they're like, you know, I, I want to continue and I want to be that person in terms of my career um, and just some tips and tricks on how to manage all of that stuff with a family.
2: Well, I think the biggest trick is to not insist in your own mind that you can do everything single-handedly. Mm-hmm. It takes a village. We are all imperfect human beings. There is no crime. And in fact, it is good to be looking and asking for help when you need it. And then you return it when you can I cite this really interesting example, and she wasn't even someone I interviewed for the book. This was something I heard from my internist who talked about the fact that she would often rely on stay-at-home moms in her neighborhood when her kids were little to fill in in a pinch when she had a childcare crisis. But then what she also did was she took a week's vacation every year and essentially returned the favor, paid it back, uh, offered to take care of the stay-at-home mom's kids either before, after, or during school if they were not school age. And so this idea that we're not in this alone, that there are resources that we can reach out to, and there's plenty of resources in terms of support groups for parents of all kinds of persuasions online, and, and then we in turn need to pay it forward. And lots of times I've asked, you know, why did these women for either of these books agree to talk to you at great length and on the record to expose themselves, not just for their achievements, but for their shortcomings? And it's because these women believe that other women help them and men help them. Many men help them to get to be where they got to be in their careers and in their families. And so they feel the moral obligation to pay it forward.
1: I was actually going to ask that question as well around maybe describing their relationship, you know, if, if they were married, like the type of support that they had within the household, because it is more common today for both people to work, not maybe it wasn't the same you know, in, in 20 years ago or, or whenever it was, again, I'm, I'm a little naive to the subject, but um, just understanding maybe how that spouse supported them when they said, hey, I, you know, I'm, I'm really digging into my career here. And that may take away from family time.
2: Well, I thought one of the best examples of that in Power Moms was one of the younger generation executives who she was going, again, 110% on her career. She was a high level corporate attorney. Her husband was also an executive. They had little kids and she didn't feel like he was pulling his weight, even though they were at least philosophically committed to being co-parents. And so she called him on it, you know, and she just said, you need to step up the game here. And he's like, I get it. You know, I see you're under a lot of stress. It makes me very unhappy to see you be so stressed out you know how about i start making all the kids regular pediatrician appointments and i take them because this was kind of what some people call the, the third shift you know she was taking care of that responsibility and she said that would be fabulous and then he pauses and says and what's the pediatrician's name and phone number again
1: <laughs> yep <laughs> Yeah,
2: I'll help great. out. You just
0: need to hand me the directory so I know who who to call and when, right?
2: <laughs> and frankly, I think some of the savvier, younger executive moms I interviewed in the book didn't, they didn't stand for that for very long. Okay. And a lot of them kind of made it clear what their expectations were and found out what their spouse-to-be's expectations were early on in the relationship before the kids arrived. Mm -hmm. Uh, At the point when they were making a commitment to either live together or to be domestic partners or or get married, there was this one younger executive generation woman who she and her husband to be decided, and I think it was her idea because she came from the business world, that they would have quarterly strategic planning meetings. (laughs) Okay, to talk about how are we doing as a couple? how are we doing about sharing the domestic load? When she was expecting their first child, they had one of their quarterly strategic planning meetings to talk about the pros and cons of hiring a nanny. He was just starting his practice. He was joining his father's practice as a surgeon. She was going to be traveling a lot after she went back from maternity leave. They decided that they did need to have a nanny, but they worked stuff out and they didn't let it fester and grow and, build resentment. And and frankly, at the end of the day, it is important to constantly revisit not only what your priorities are as a couple, but your priorities as a family. And frankly, in turn, employers should be doing the same. You know, a lot of companies say, okay, you know, we do an employee survey and we know exactly what everybody needs, whether they have kids or not. Guess what? Kids get bigger. You know, <laughs> or people have more children or people's children go off to high school or college. And you have to constantly, it seems to me, as both a, a member of a two-career couple, but also if you're wearing the hat of being in HR, you have to be constantly taking the temperature of what it is people need. And are you meeting those needs?
0: Yeah, well, I loved your, uh, or their quarterly example it just goes to show that things in our personal life can be applicable at work and things in our work life. We can make applicable at home too. So that was a good example, I think maybe that's a really good segue into the chapter of your book, Joanne, that um, is titled Making Work Workable for Parents. So maybe we talk a little bit about that chapter and then we kind of close things out with where people can find your your book and where people can connect with you if they want to talk more on this topic or learn more about your work. Um, I really liked the specific examples that you gave in this chapter, and you actually called out some very specific organizations that have demonstrated some progress they've made in these areas. So maybe um, if you would want to um, reference one or two of them that that you enjoyed the most.
2: Well, I'll I'll give a a large company example and a startup example. So the large company example would be American Express. And what was really impressive about American Express was not only the fact that they made their parental leave policy much more generous, six months of paid leave, irrespective of gender, but they put in a concierge service that was available before, during, and after parental leaves on an open-ended basis, 24 seven. To deal with all and any issues that these new parents might be struggling with. But separate from that, the company also recognized that when you're suddenly having a fair number of men and women going out on parental leave, this is going to create some staffing issues for bosses. Uh, particularly, you know, it could also cause resentment among either those whose children are grown or who don't ever plan to have kids. And so, American Express also then created pots of money so that first line supervisors could hire temporary staff to fill in some of those gaps. And I experienced that practice myself because when I showed up at American Express to interview the female executive that became an example of the younger power mom, the guy in PR who I had been dealing with wasn't there. And there was a PR agency woman saying, oh yeah, he went off on his parental leave last week. His wife just had their first child. He won't be back for six months. I, I'm, I'm filling in for him. Mm-hmm. But what was important about American Express and you'll hear about in the next example is that they the people at the top and particularly the men walk the talk, okay? And so they would have breakfast. And other kinds of sessions where senior executives who had taken parental leave, who were guys, would talk to men who were about to do this or were thinking about having kids about why their careers had not suffered for it and why it was important for them, not only as a parent to become a parent, but that this would make them probably a better boss. And the good example on the startup side was Rent the Runway, where I interviewed the CEO and co-founder, Jen Hyman who, again, not only liberalized her family-friendly benefits to cover not just the salaried employees, but all hourly employees as well, but she also made sure that the people who were her direct reports took advantage of some of these policies. And so when her male chief technology officer was about to go off on his parental leave, she told him he needed to, number one, take the full amount that was guaranteed under the company's policy, and he needed to broadcast it, not just to his team, but to everyone in the company, which he did. And what Jen Hyman reported to me is that before he did this, relatively few other men in the company would take their full entitled the parental leave and after he did this every guy when he became a new dad took their full parental leave
0: yeah I loved that story in the book what a powerful one when we share our stories with other people and we don't mm-hmm. um, you know keep decisions that we're making or total rewards policies or opportunities that a company provides you know keep it close to the to the vest if you will um, it just opens it up for people to not carry shame or guilt around wanting to, you know, fully take advantage of the rewards that companies, you know, in this case, like American Express provided, or I guess it was a Rent the Runway provided to their employees. So thank you for sharing those with
2: us.
1: Joanne, before we wrap, can you talk about your favorite chapter in, in the book and, and why, why it's your favorite?
2: I think my favorite chapter is one that I am rarely asked about on podcasts. Uh, And it's a chapter called Power Over Pain. And I think it's a very, very powerful chapter because it talks not only about dealing with a healthcare crisis of your own or of a family member, but how in many cases for these women I interviewed for the book, it gave them reason to kind of rethink how they were approaching their career and to maybe not be always on and to maybe think about trying to have more work-life sway, which we haven't even talked about at all, but which is this notion of we can go back and forth between our personal lives and our work lives. And when they had either their own serious illness or that of a loved one, it became a kind of eye-opening moment where they rethought about who they are, who they're, what their priorities are, and how they wanted to structure their lives differently.
1: That's yeah. yeah, that's super powerful. And I can see how, I mean, we, I think people have even small moments <laughs> within the work week or the work day that um, kind of reframe things. So I, I appreciate you sharing that. I'm glad that we were able to give you the platform to share that since not other podcasts it. so.
2: Well, there was this one woman whose father died right before he was ready to retire. He never got to experience retirement. Mm-hmm. He was in the early sixties. And this was this really shook her to her core.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's one of my fears for sure. So as as we wrap, Joanne, can you tell everybody where they can find the book, maybe how they can connect with you, whether it's through social media or, or other through websites?
2: Well, I do have my own website, which is very easy, joannelublin.com. And if you go to my website at the very top, there are six links to six different online retailers, either any one of which or all six would be happy to take your order. And if you do decide to buy a hardback version, you can email me at joannelublin at gmail.com and I would be happy to send you by snail mail, a personalized autographed book plate put inside your copy. (laughs)
0: I did uh, take Joanne up on her offer and I have one in my book, so highly recommend it to our listeners. And Joanne, I know this book is still relatively new, but I'm curious if you're um, have another, a book on your wanting to write list. And if so, what, what the topic might be.
2: Um, At at the moment, I do not. Uh, I am trying to be semi-retired, but I remain a regular contributor to the Wall Street Journal. And I'm doing a lot of profiles of women and people of color. And five of those profiles over the last year or so have been women that are ones I interviewed for Power Moms.
0: Excellent. Well, it was such a pleasure. I'm so uh, glad to have met the author of a book that I enjoyed so much. Um, And I, I hope that any of our listeners who haven't read it will certainly consider giving it a read. So thank you again for your time today. You're welcome. Thank you for listening to this episode of What the HR. If you want to hear more episodes like this, be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or whatever platform you're listening through now. If you enjoyed the podcast, do us a favor and share with your network, your boss, or your CEO. Help us get this podcast in front of anyone who wants to know what HR looks like when done well. Also, if you have any questions for show topics or people you'd like us to interview, please email Mike and I at podcast at tcsherm.org. That's podcast at tcsshrm.org. If you want to find out more about Twin City Sherm or our upcoming events, please visit our website at tcsherm.org. You can also follow us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And finally, if you're not already a member of Twin City Sherm, Please use code WHATTHEHR at checkout to receive $20 off your membership. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next episode.